0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Hello and welcome back everybody to our 30th episode. It's mid-February 2022 and as if there isn't enough already going on at PJM right now, a new, we're going to call it a minor crisis has begun to unfold. Unexpected congestion from a transmission line rebuild was causing extreme pricing in an isolated section of Virginia. Now, those unexpected price spikes appear to have caused themselves a financial market trader to abandon now losing positions in that area and triggered another financial default. Certainly not to the extent of the green hat FTR portfolio default from a couple of years ago, but it may require members to eat some of those losses. Now, I said was because PJM asked for, and FERC recently approved, some rule changes to address this issue. So the extreme pricing has been mitigated, but what's to be done about the default itself remains to be determined. On the FERC front, The commission has established a show cause order on alternative market seller offer caps that's sure to extend the capacity market's current state of uncertainty. With that, I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me as always is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, did you hear about the prognosticating groundhog in New Jersey that died right before its big day earlier this month? Uh, no, I didn't because there is only one groundhog. (laughs) Um,
1: That's the answer. And he or she is not in New Jersey, Rory. Come on. (laughs) Yeah,
0: no, that's fair. That's fair. I just wanted to, I mean, I, it, it just goes to, I don't know. There's just something about the fact that New Jersey tries to do a groundhog and they still somehow can't make, I mean, I just, I don't, I don't really know where the rest of that goes. I don't have all the pieces together, but it's just. I don't know Uh, something about that
1: out there somewhere in the internet land. And I'm sure one of our listeners has the Google skills to find it. You'll find pictures of me with Punxsutawney Phil. Uh, We were doing an event when I was on the public utility commission about preparing for winter and we hired Phil as our celebrity spokesperson uh, to help us out and getting that message out. So, um, you know, a a great PR move right out of your own playbook, Rory, but uh, a lot of
0: fun. Very nice, very nice. And then he somehow parlayed that into a career shilling for the lottery. Yeah, it's a whole
1: operation. I think a lot of folks outside of Pennsylvania don't really appreciate how big it is. I understand
0: what Phil does. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he's been around for quite some time, too. Very reliable, much more dependable than his uh, apparently than his New Jersey counterpart over there. Well, we're very excited about this month's guest because it's going to be all about transmission. With transmission costs and needs increasing, FERC instituting a proceeding on transmission planning for the future, and grid operators all over, not just PJM, grappling with how to interconnect large amounts of anticipated new resources during the industry's ongoing transition, not to mention recent media focus on the issue that we'll get to later. His visit could not be more timely. We have with us today Ken Seiler, PJM's Vice President of System Planning. Ken has come up through the ranks at PJM, having started there in the early 2000s. He's an electrical engineer by training from Penn State, and he visits the show while PJM is in the midst of a fairly substantive overhaul of its queue for analyzing generators' requests to interconnect to PJM's grid, which is, as you might have guessed, being driven by the aforementioned unprecedented number of interconnection requests as the industry continues its worldwide transition towards emissions-free generation, or at least more of it. A quick look at PJM's new services queue shows a couple thousand requests for new resources, and that's on top of the adjustments of existing units, the vast majority of which are wind and solar intermittent renewable generators. The industry transition resulting demand and FERC's ANOPER that's an advanced notice of public rulemaking, On Transmission spurred PJM to host a workshop series led by Ken in 2021, last year, on interconnection policy, which included an introductory address from FERC Chairman Rich Glick himself. So there are a lot of moving parts to PJM's work on interconnection. Ken... Can you sum all of it up for us? Like, how is all this interconnected? And from your perspective, what's the main takeaway people outside of PJM should have?
2: Sure, Rory. I'll walk through this. So, you know, we've been working on this issue well before FERC came out with the Nober. We had obviously... Seen how things were evolving within the system and the number of projects and the types of projects that we were seeing throughout the footprint. At the same time, we as an organization were developing a corporate strategy to really facilitate state and federal de- decarbonization policies that were having an impact on our area, and then plan for the grid of the future, which we will talk about, and then find ways to foster innovation as we progress through our strategy for the next several years. So interconnection reform was a key part of our strategy going forward, and that work began with us and our stakeholders to really improve the efficiency of the interconnection process because we were seeing a complete change in the types of projects, the number of projects. And we really wanted to have an opportunity to work with our stakeholders to take a look at how to move these projects through the queue much quicker and provide more cost certainty. We've also looked at the other ISOs and RTOs across the nation, and they're also experiencing a high volume of interconnection requests in their systems as well. We've seen an influx of renewables throughout our footprint. Right now, 95% of our queue consists of wind or solar or hybrid type projects. And this is gonna continue, we believe, frankly, for some time. And as a result, we're seeing a different type of projects. We're seeing smaller projects throughout the footprint and all of them need to be studied. We need to understand and recognize the impact of the system in order to maintain reliability for the grid as we go through this transition. Um, You may recall that we had conversations with our stakeholders beginning in October of 2020 to come up with a new framework to really improve the interconnection process. And then finally, in in 2021, we had officially formed the interconnection process reform task force, you know, and that was after holding a number of workshops that we talked about. And the task force just actually finished up their work and is presenting their proposals to our stakeholder community. And in fact, in January, we received nearly 100% positive votes towards the new process, And then as recently as yesterday, we had received a 91 percent vote of endorsement of the transition to the new process going forward. So we're pretty excited. Um, Obviously, those proposals need to then move forward with the Markets and Reliability Committee, followed by the Members Committee. And then we'll look to file this with FERC in May, our changes that we have planned for the interconnection reforms. So the overriding goal, again, is really to get these projects through the process much more quickly and provide much more cost certainty. And there's a lot of aspects that we believe in the new process will be really conducive to making sure that we get the first projects that are ready and the first served on a first served basis and get those through the queue, get them interconnected as quickly as possible. We'll also look at projects that have very little needs for network upgrades. Um, In moving those through a final agreement as soon as possible as well. And then there's some other more subtle things like 100% of site control will be needed within the first six months after executing the final agreement. So a lot of changes in place with the new process that we think is going to be very conducive, really interconnecting generation going forward. Um, We also developed a fast link, um, and that is we have a fast lane process that will help prioritize and interconnect what we're estimating to be about 450 projects right now today. And again, we're pretty excited about the new process. We can tell stakeholders are fairly excited as well. And um, we believe this is really going to help us with the transformation of the grid as it moves forward. And, and as a final takeaway, I'd just say, Rory, that all of the integral par- parties, including FERC, the states, um, all our member utilities that you know, distribute the energy to our consumers all are very much aware that we need to have an efficient study and in interconnection process with real projects um, to move forward in a reliable manner. So we're pretty excited. Um, we and when I, when I say we, meaning the collective industry are all working together on a path forward. And we believe that we're making really nice progress and we're never going to really steer from our core priority, which is the reliability of the grid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, Ken. And maybe if I could just maybe set the table a little bit more, cause I mean, that was, that was terrific, but you mentioned there was 2,500 projects in the queue right now, 95% of them are, you know, wind or solar. Can you just contrast maybe how the, the queue of 2022 compares to the, the, the grid of maybe twenty twenty o two? 2002?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Glenn. We've seen a lot of changes, you know, since I started here in 2000 in our queue. Um, When we first started the queue, you know, we were seeing large combined cycle gas plants coming onto the system as a result of the Marcellus and Utica shale gas. A number of changes occurred, and those were large combined cycle units, 1,000 megawatts, even up to 1,500, 1,600 megawatt type of units. And we saw also a lot of those projects were well financed, were well thought out. There was a significant amount of headroom in our system at the time. And as a result, today we're seeing a higher volume of projects, much more distributed throughout the footprint. A lot of them are 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts solar farms interconnecting at sub-transmission levels, frankly. The other thing we're seeing today is we'll see a developer who will submit 10, 12, 15 projects when they only have the financing to build maybe two or three. So a lot of very speculative type projects are in our queue today, which is not helping us clear the backlog, frankly, and it's clogging up the queue. Um, The other thing, Glenn, I would add is, you know, these projects are more inverter-based projects. Like I said before, they're much more renewables. um, And it's really gonna get pretty deeply into the physics of how the grid actually works, how it operates. And we're gonna have discussions here in our future frankly, is part of moving from a traditional thermal type of generator into um, other areas like renewables, like inverter-based resources. And we'll be talking about those basic reliability attributes that we need in order to run a power grid, things like inertia, short circuit, frequency response, ramping, regulation, fuel assurance, those sorts of things going into our future, including Black Start. All those essential services are very much in demand and required that, frankly, we've taken for granted for many, many years. And now with the changing of the grid, um, these things have got to be studied. We've got to examine it going forward um, because it's going to change how we plan the grid, how we operate the grid. And then we got to understand what those impacts are going to be. The one thing I will point everybody to is we had performed a study called a renewable integration study that we really tried to take a look at how the system is changing, what essential services, like I had described before, that we're going to need, what analytical tools are we going to need to plan the system, to operate the system, to ensure that we have a reliable grid for the future. We have all those essential services, and we have a stable grid going forward for, you know, the 65 million people that We serve.
0: One of the things I thought you might get into there was the idea that, you know, instead of it being a centralized grid where you have the the centralized power and it's sending it one direction, we're now having distributed resources and it's become more of a two way street. And I know that I've been in uh, stakeholder meetings where Transmission owners have expressed concern about the safety of workers, not necessarily knowing, you know, their usual procedures are such that if we shut things off upstream, we don't have to worry about anything coming from downstream because it's all one way. But now it's two ways. That how how does that factor into your concerns, or is that more of like a localized transmission owner issue?
2: Well, that's a localized transmission owner issue for sure. And what it does is it creates additional risk for those linemen and for those crews, especially under a storm restoration type activity where they need to isolate themselves from any potential risk of backfeed into the system so they can work safely in order to restore those customers who have been taken out during a storm. So it's creating risk for those linemen, for those utilities who serve those customers, um, and really puts a lot of focus on the safety of those employees so they can restore the service going forward.
0: Okay, obviously with something this large, there is significant risk for getting it wrong, some of which we are already seeing being preemptively addressed from revising capacity contribution calculations for resources to determining the rights that resources have to interject energy into the grid, the so-called CIRs, the capacity interconnection rights, as well as costs and who pays for them, as always, obviously. With so many varying interests, they often conflict. When that happens, how do you prioritize which of these get addressed at the expense of others? Do you have a guideline that you follow?
2: Well, Rory, as you well know, we never have conflicting interests or we never have issues (laughs) with
0: our
2: (laughs) So that's never been an issue here. I, I see. <laughs> no, seriously, though, and you know, really, we do recognize we have varying interests. And that's a good thing. Frankly, we want to hear from all sides and get all the facts on the table so that we understand, you know, what all the issues are, what we need to consider before making any decisions. Um, as you well know, we do not set policy. You know, our states and our federal government set policy. We do not own the transmission lines. We do not own generation plants. Our job is really to be the facilitator and lead the conversation as an independent authority for our stakeholders. As far as prioritization is concerned, we don't favor one industry or one field type over anybody else. Um, What we do try to prioritize, though, is the reliability and the resilience of the grid. And our mission is to make sure that the generation that wishes to interconnect to the grid is reliable. And we have 65 million people who count on us across 14 different jurisdictions to really get the answer right. So aside from that, you know, our guidelines are really rooted in our members and which right now are well over a thousand different members in our stakeholder process, which, as you know, always starts out with the interest identification, potentially a problem statement, an issue charge. And the good news is that we have a dynamic process. Um, It's continually looking at how to make things better. And if we do get it wrong, and you know, to, to use the words that you had just mentioned, we will definitely hear about it from any number of stakeholders. And, and the final thing I'd like to point out is you know, we've had some really contentious issues before in the past um, with our stakeholders. And, and most recently, in fact, was the interconnection reform process. Um, and that's a great example of how we've worked very hard to bring consensus to our stakeholders in a way that has been very positive with the most recent vote at the planning committee. So we have a lot of different interests involved there. Um, we really come together oftentimes for some very very solid solutions that will work for everybody, and we think it's a win win.
1: It's interesting you talk about the queue earlier, Ken. Twenty five hundred interconnection requests, and you know that that stands in stark contrast to the queue in the early two thousands when you probably only had a you know maybe a couple hundred. Uh, but it strikes me also that there's different there's different players in the pjm market than there used to be um right i mean it's not just utilities transmission companies and and merchant generators there's a lot of other folks that are basically showing up at pjm for the first time um and they have like i said they have a business plan maybe they have a a, a, a farm a, a cornfield they have a vision um these are all you know i'm not i'm not trying to belittle these players they are all very legitimate players But they're also very new to PJM and it it has to be a little bit of a, I don't want to say culture shock. I think that's too strong, but a a cultural uh, evolution that they have to go through as they get introduced to PJM. Any any specific advice to those folks who are maybe, you know, interacting with PJM the first time and, and candidly probably experiencing a fair amount of frustration because, um you know they would they're maybe expecting more out of the queue process than than they're getting any any thoughts to those folks
2: yeah sure glenn um few thoughts so yeah you're absolutely right we do have a number of new players that we did not have back in the early 2000s when we started this process and you know there's a number of new type of developers are out there and it's sometimes it's small mom-and-pop farms um you know we have people in the state of Illinois who may own a couple hundred acres who want to take advantage of the wind in that area and try to develop some wind farms. So, you know, one of the things we really try hard to do in a variety of forms and fashions is really try to educate those new members who are coming into our system in looking at all the different rules and processes and procedures that they need to follow in order to become interconnected. It can become a little overwhelming and it's it's a pretty extensive process. There's a lot of rules associated with it. And frankly, the rules from ISO to RTO are different. So we try to provide the education. We do different video trainings. And we have project managers who will sit and spend hours on the phone with these people. Back before COVID, we had people in the field who were visiting some of these new developers and spending time to explain what our processes are. Really going through the education to try to describe to them why we need to study these projects what the potential impacts are on the system, and really try to help people help themselves to become an interconnected generator and eventually maybe even a member of our system and then participate to their advantage within our stakeholder process. But you are absolutely right, Clint. Things are changing. And we have a lot more varied interest than what we did 25 years ago.
1: You know, we've talked about on this podcast many times about state policies and some of the the challenges associated with that from basically a a grid standpoint, a a regulatory standpoint. Um, You know, but I think about you and your job, Ken, and and your job is delivering reliability. And um, while state commissions and state legislators have to follow the laws of their states, you have to follow, follow the laws of physics. Um, and those are a lot harder to amend um, than, than the laws of any individual state. So um, I think folks tend to maybe forget that a little bit that, you know, ultimately, you, there's certain things that a system just flat out needs if it's going to continue to operate and, and you're the one in charge of making sure that happens.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, Glenn, and, and we try to remind our stakeholders of that at times as well, that you know we're trying to deal with the laws of physics, and um, you know electricity flows at the speed of light, very, very difficult to store, although we're seeing newer technologies in that space, but this is a, a very hot commodity that's really required and needed by everybody and everything in order to keep everybody working and every, everything flowing throughout the, the whole economy. Um, So yes, you're absolutely right. We, We try to inject that voice of reason into some of the policy decisions that we see at the state and federal level and try to even explain a lot of that to our stakeholders as we work through these different studies and we come up with the upgrades required and the associated costs to build out the system in a reliable way.
0: Okay, the proposed Q reform that's currently going through the PJM stakeholder process on its way to eventually... FERC has received a lot of input. I believe I heard a poll on the final proposal set a PJM record uh, for respondents at several hundred. Staff have obviously been working on this for a long time and attempted to include all the feedback they've received. But there came a point where they just kind of said, no more changes. This is where we're at. Why has this needle been so hard to thread? And maybe why are stakeholder interests so disparate on this issue?
2: Well, let me let me start out with, first of all, yes, we did set a record. We pulled the Interconnection Process Reform Task Force on the reform packages we had in mind, and we received responses from 625 companies, which is an all-time record, 280 of which were member companies. And that goes back to Glenn's last point. You know, we had 625 companies, and, and only 280 were actually members of our system. So the informal poll results for the transition and for the final solution were very positive that's the good news. And what folks are doing is they're representing their particular projects within our portfolio and trying to understand what the changes that we're planning to make will have an impact on their particular projects. So, you know, I think the simple answer is at the end of the day, it's it's very important to these people. Um, And these folks are very passionate about their particular projects and integrating renewables into our system. Um, The interconnection process is really the key to unlocking the future potential of the grid. Just as we had integrated the new gas generators 15, 20 years ago, it's really the bread and butter for these people going forward. There's a lot of passion around this. There's a lot of energy. And, you know, this effort in particular, we had a lot of new players going back to Glenn's earlier point. Folks like Google, Amazon had representatives in these meetings representing what their corporate goals are around sustainability, and they wanted to make sure that they could advance these renewable projects through our queue in order to meet their corporate goals as well. So they're new to the process. Their issues are a little bit new to us at times as well. But in the end, it's those voices that we need to hear from that's going to make this whole process successful.
0: So, so Ken, with, with that sort of as background, is this Q reform proposal and the transmission mechanism that has been uh, approved at least uh, so far into the, uh, the planning committee, is this the best outcome that we could have hoped for? And maybe stated another way, if you could have guided it in another direction, what would you maybe have done differently about it?
2: Look, I believe it's a good solution. I, I believe it is the best outcome that we could have come up with. We knew the interconnection process, which you know worked very well for us. We had studied over seven hundred thousand megawatts of generation over the last twenty couple of years. We've interconnected seventy thousand megawatts of generation over the last twenty couple of years. had served us very well, but we knew it was time to take a fresh look at it, potentially make some changes based on the dynamics. So we set up those forms back in 2020. We set up the interconnection process reform task force in 2021. And I believe that the ultimate decision is really going to lie with FERC on what we submit and then what they decide upon in terms of changes. But uh, fortunately, our stakeholders coalesced around our two proposals for the future, and we believe it's a strong proposal. If we started over again today, Rory, I think we would have ended up pretty much in the same spot, and we're comfortable feeling where we are. We, we feel like we've developed a very thoughtful and comprehensive reform that accounts for all the different types of projects that we're seeing today in our queue. And it really rewards those who come ready to interconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went about this in a way that we always would in terms of getting input from all sides. We feel good with where we ended up. Again, the landscape is changing. And if we need to go back to FERC and let's say this, let's change this or change that, then we will. But uh, I think FERC's going to be pretty happy with where we ended up. And really, at the end of the day, you know, we've been talking a lot about our process. I think there's a general consensus that some of the existing national policies on transmission planning need to reform as well. And if we're going to accommodate all the influx of renewables like solar and wind and hybrids. And, you know, we're certainly engaged in those discussions at a state level, at a federal level within Washington, D.C. and talking to the commissioners and talking to the staff. And I expect FERC will be coming back to us very, very shortly with a notice of proposed rulemaking um, in order to direct us to do some other things as well.
1: Well, speaking of FERC, that's probably a great way to <laughs> transition uh, to the A ANOPER, the big ANOPER. I mean, you may you mentioned there might be other ones coming your way, but... You know, FERC put out uh, last year a a pretty extensive um, ANOPER as it relates to transmission. Uh, PJM has filed comments in the docket. Uh, Many states have industry players. Obviously, it's a pretty large docket. But um, I want to just maybe dive a little deeper on PJM's thoughts that were expressed in their comments to, to FERC. And PJM went to great lengths to explain that the topography of PJM may be different than other parts of the country. There's just unique aspects of PJM, given where loads located, where the renewable assets are located. And, you know, PJM took what looked like a message to FERC saying that, you know, PJM's backbone is probably strong as it relates to the grid of future and maybe these massive investments that are being called for in other areas may not be necessary in PJM. Um, is that a fair way to, to, you know, interpret PJM's comments uh, in this Noper?
2: Yes, I think it is Glenn. I mean, RQ based generation is in locations. I think it's 86% is within a hundred miles of the major load centers. Wow. This generation fleet, I believe we calculated was 87% of it is within hundred miles of the major load centers as well. And what we were trying to say to FERC is look, we're a particularly tight integrated transmission grid within our system. And it's a, it's a system that really, because of the tight integration of all the transmission that we have really doesn't need long haul transmission across the entire footprint. And we believe that we have a pretty strong and robust transmission system. And we're different than what you may see perhaps in the Midwest or within WEC. So we wanted to really make that distinction so that FERC recognized recognized there are regional differences between the ISOs and the RTOs across the nation. And we all have little different needs. So what we were doing was really asking FERC not to assume that new long transmission lines are really necessary in every area. Um, And, and you know, really, at the end of the day, we want to avoid the unnecessary spend of long-haul transmission when we really don't need it. We want to be much more surgical about where we demand and require transmission to be built.
1: Well, your comments will probably come as great relief to FERC Commissioner Mark Christie, who was our guest (laughs) on last month's episode who told us on several occasions about his experience with the trail line that he had to sit on and approve eventually as a state commissioner, which may, it sounds like may go
2: down in history as one of the
1: last long haul transmission projects in PJM.
2: Yeah, I've, uh, I've gotten to know for commissioner Christie quite well over the last year. <laughs> so. and sure. uh, we've, had, we've had a lot of very, very good discussions, Glenn. Um, Well, first of all, look, I mean, transmission is very important and it's important because it delivers the power from the plants to the consumers. And we understand that, you know, cost is a very important factor in this whole whole place. And we want to make sure that we're building transmission where it's needed. And we don't want to go too far out to build additional transmission when based on the changing dynamic landscape that we're in right now in this transformation, we may not need in 10, 15, 20 years. So we want to be... You know, providing a strong backbone, we want to pro- be providing transmission capability to those who need it in order to serve our consumers very reliably. But at the end of the day, we don't want to overbuild the system. The other piece I would mention is that we on the East Coast have a, an aging transmission system as well. The bulk transmission system we have today, that 500 kV system, And the 765 kV system was built in the mid to late 60s. And those systems are now 60 years of age. And we've been seeing a lot of renewables now looking to interconnect to the sub-transmission system, which is taking the headroom out of the sub-transmission system. And in those systems, those sub-transmission systems were built in the 50s. You know, in many cases, we're seeing lines that are like 115, 138 kV lines that are 90 or even close to a hundred years old at this point. So we have an aging infrastructure, much like the rest of the nation, with whether it's water lines or gas lines or sewer lines or other types of infrastructure, we have an aging transmission grid as well. Nearly thirty percent of our transmission assets are at their end of life. So this transmission system's worked hard, it's served us very, very well for a number of years, but we will continue to really have to invest in that transmission system in order to serve our consumers. Um, so we're gonna have to take a look at it and we're gonna have to take a look at it in ways that we haven't really traditionally in a real strong way looked at it before. And that's by using things like advanced tech technologies that may be out there. And that's gonna play a key role because look, there's limited amounts of right away, limited amounts of easements that are available for us. Even if we had to build Greenfield, Um, So those advanced technologies, I believe, especially in a congested area like the East Coast, are going to be very, very key going forward. And, you know, we've already seen somewhat of a use of some of those advanced technologies and interest in those things. For example, in things like storage as a transmission asset using dynamic line ratings, um, which is really a way to maximize the throughput through those transmission lines for the existing frame or existing transmission lines we have in place. We also need to take a look at underground transmission, HVDC, things like smart valve solutions, carbon core conductor, you know, which has the capability to uh, have four times the ampacity of a steel core conductor. It is much lighter. And this has got to be part of the overall equation as well, well. and it's got to be part of some sort of federal policy, I believe, um, to really promote some of the innovative technologies and thinking that's out there today. So it's really going to take a village to build this system out in a way that's reliable and resilient in this transformation. And, um, you know, that combined with extreme weather, cybersecurity threats, we need to be very thoughtful and we need to be very cautious in the way that we move forward.
0: It sounds like what you're saying kind of does align very much with what Commissioner Christie said, and that all sort of culminates in the idea that transmission costs are up and they're going to continue to grow. How should customers think about that? And does that create an incentive to leave the grid? Our role
2: as the transmission planner and transmission operator for the region is to ensure that we're doing things as cost-effectively as we can. And our job is to make sure that we're being very surgical around where we apply technologies, where we build new transmission, what enhancements we make in order to be very prudent with our consumers' money at the end of the day. And what we want to do is we want to provide a reliable and robust system in a way that builds the necessary transmission, but not too much. So we're in a position where we can take an independent look at what we need to do in order to provide our customers with that level of reliability that they've come to know. So I believe that we're going to continue to Certainly use our stakeholder process to develop frameworks, advance some of these ideas within our community, and then bring everybody's best minds together to solve some of these problems in a way that's going to build the right amount of transmission while recognizing we need to be prudent with other people's money.
1: Yeah, and that's a great segue also to another issue that's front and center in the ANOPER, and that is the issue of participant funding and the principle of beneficiary pays. And I mean, those have been two pretty long-standing principles of transmission planning and PJM. Um, what are your thoughts about moving away from that model? And, and what would be what would be the implications if, if if suddenly those longstanding rules are are now
2: no longer in place? Well, it's a good point. I mean, first heard a lot of different ideas around what's just and reasonable in terms of cost allocation and participant funding, generally speaking. You know, at the end of the day, either the cost causer pays or the beneficiary pays or a hybrid of those two. And we can and we've had recommended a variety of new methods to FERC, as you probably saw within our ANOPRA comments. But we're, we're really policy takers. We're not policy makers at the end of the day. And we may not have control of these policies. But we and our stakeholders definitely have a stake in those different policies, which is why at the same time we created a task force in order to focus on some of the interconnection reforms, as well as kicking off a workshop to promote the dialogue around cost allocation and this idea of participant funding. So the forum that we held really held a number of panels with different sectors, all five of our sectors, frankly, to bring to bear their thoughts around participant funding and if there's any appetite for changing that. Our existing fleet and the generators who have interconnected to the grid have paid for those upgrades. So now if we're looking at moving away from a participant funding model and moving into a beneficiary pays model, then the question is, you know, how is that fair to those who did have to pay for the upgrades? So a lot of things are on the table. We believe it's worthwhile to consider changes depending upon what FERC or state policy may be. And we can take a look at that. In fact, what we had done, we had submitted six different cost allocation options in our ANOPRA comments for FERC to consider. And we had, we had discussions with FERC around what those different options were. We explained that in our filing, but we're not endorsing the cost causer versus a beneficiary pays model. But if we do have to change that model to from a cost causer or a participant funding model to a beneficiary pays model, we're going to have to be able to quantify those benefits by which those consumers are going to realize. And it's got to be, it's got to be repeatable. It's got to be transparent and it's got to be a, in a way that's clear for those consumers and those loads who have to pay for those upgrades as a result of the benefits that they will be re- realizing as a result of new you know, renewable type of interconnections. The one thing yeah. I will add though, that's very important here. We've seen the beneficiary model in other areas, and we've also seen the transmission costs also skyrocket in those areas, because what it doesn't do is it doesn't force the generator to look at feasible locations to build generation. So we got to be very cautious going into that. And we've had a number of uh, different issues across the nation where transmission costs have skyrocketed as a result of generation developers building really anywhere, and it may be very infeasible at times.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really excellent point. I mean, particularly as the cube is expanding, like you point out, I mean, transmission costs are a prime driver of uh, generation location. Um, and if you take that off the table, yeah, that's an excellent point. Right.
2: Yeah. And we're expecting to hear more about ben- beneficiaries and cost allocation, most likely within an upcoming Doper, which we're expecting here in the spring. We're expecting to hear more out of FERC on that. So we're going to have to take a hard look at that, engage once again with our stakeholders with what FERC wants to move forward with and then get ready to submit comments yet again.
1: Yeah, we asked Commissioner Christie flat out on the last episode whether there was any reason to believe cost allocation would be any easier um, this time. <laughs> and uh, he gave a pretty short answer to that question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: next question. Yeah,
0: yeah next
2: question. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's he's made that very clear to me as well. And, um, you know, cost allocation is one of the most contentious issues that any state or federal policymaker can take on. So if they want to take that on, that's going to be very, very significant. Tell as old as time.
0: (laughs) Well, obviously, we have some offshore wind coming into the purview, at least, of PJM's planning. We've got the state agreement approach that was just recently filed at FERC, and uh, we just got an update on it. This is New Jersey BPU's agreement with PJM uh, to look into offshore wind off their coast. Ken, can you give us an update on and an idea on what can we expect in the near future regarding offshore wind in PJM's grid?
2: Well, first of all, offshore wind is very exciting for us. You know, we have we have generation and tie lines to the north, south, and west, but we don't have anything to the east. So this is a really exciting landmark that we've entered into with the state of New Jersey, and we've really engaged with New Jersey in a really collaborative way to advance you know, their state public policy for the 7,500 megawatts of offshore wind. And this provision within ROA was one that we had, had incorporated back under FERC order 1000, which really required grid operators like us to provide for the consideration of transmission needs driven by public policy requirements in our planning processes. So we put those provisions in place, and this is the first time, that we've had anybody take advantage of that. So the state state agreement approach really enables a state or a group of states, frankly, to propose a project to pursue their public policy goals that they have. This has really enabled New Jersey to help meet their needs. And um, we're really, really excited. The great news here is that we received a very robust response from our different stakeholders. We received 80 different proposals addressing both the offshore Mm. as well as the onshore needs that would help ensure the reliability of interconnecting 7,500 megawatts of offshore wind. And we're currently evaluating the constructability, the finances, all the different elements in order to provide New Jersey with a recommendation for transmission upgrades. And we're planning on doing that, most likely here in the spring. New Jersey would then like to make a decision in the fall around what they'd like to move forward with in order to accommodate the offshore wind construction. So we're really excited. I'm excited as a transmission operator. We're excited as a transmission planner. I'm excited for the consumers in the state of New Jersey as well. And we think this is a win-win for everybody. And frankly, I think it could be a benchmark in, in and really a roadmap for other areas to use as well. So um, the state of New Jersey could select all the projects that we suggest, or they could select none of them. It's really up to them at the end of the day they're going to make the final decisions. And you're absolutely right. We're really looking forward to getting some of the offshore wind interconnected. And then finally, the other thing I'd mentioned, Ray, is, you know, we're also working with our other coastal states. Last year we had performed an offshore wind coastal study, taking a look at all the potential offshore wind goals from our coastal states. We had performed that study. We had released those results in in what we called a phase one, In our offshore wind transmission study, which was really a collaborative effort with the various states in order to identify the transmission solutions within our footprint, because we believe strongly, and we've seen this throughout our history, that regional solutions are much better than just a state-by-state type solution. Um, And it's much more cost-effective for those consumers in that state to come up with those regional type solutions. So we're really excited. We looked at a multitude of scenarios with different injections amounts at different areas across the coastline. And we range, we come up with a range of costs in order to integrate, you know, their offshore wind. And we'll likely be kicking off a phase two to peel the onion back on that offshore wind study this year. So we're we're really excited. This is a brand new chapter for us. We've talked to folks in Europe. We've talked to folks in England as well to learn from them. Mm. And um, we're really excited about building the transmission to accommodate the offshore wind that we have
0: yeah I was going to ask the question, but you you mentioned it already, so I'll just um reiterate the point that it seems like this is going to be precedent setting uh the size and sort of the process of identifying where this is all going in New Jersey and then also the other um just Atlantic wind corridor study that's going on so there's there's a lot of really foundational block setting things that seem to be going on right now
2: absolutely, absolutely. We have a lot of things that are in motion. The great news is you know we've We've been doing the planning and ops role here for many, many years. Um, you know, we have a lot of very high talented experts within the organization who are well prepared to deal with these sorts of things. And, and we're really excited because we believe we are laying a foundation for our future.
1: I never knew transmission <laughs> could be so interesting. Uh, I always thought all the phone was on the generation side.
0: <laughs> <laughs> never at the ne- moment. We talked earlier about the interconnection queue reform that's going on and the process there and the, the studies that went through. Uh, obviously, there have been some criticisms of that. I would be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity. There's been recently been some media reports on the Q reform. And, uh, the, you know, they, they, they mentioned that, oh, this is going to basically stop new renewable interconnections for the next two years. I know you've made some comments on this uh, at PJM meetings. Uh, I'll give you the floor if there's anything in, in particular that you would like to say about that, the media coverage or the criticisms to the proposal, by all means.
2: Yeah, there was been some there was a press report put out there that we're taking a two-year pause within the interconnection process. And let me let me give you the facts behind what we're really doing. The the fact is we're reprioritizing our focus and all our energies of our staff to focus in on those projects that have been in the queue the longest in order to clear the backlog. So although we're not processing the latest projects, we're still processing over a hundred thousand megawatts, over a thousand different interconnection requests that are backlogged in order to advance us forward to get those projects addressed and get those studies completed so that those developers can then decide if they wanna move forward to construction in signing the interconnection service agreement or not. So although it was framed, I think, in one of the news reports that we're taking a two-year pause, I can assure you we continue to hire staff, we continue to reform the processes, we continue to perform the studies In such a way, in the collaborative effort, frankly, with our transmission owners, in order to get those studies out the door, get answers to people back as soon as possible. So we're working very hard on those thousand projects that are the oldest in our queue, over 100,000 megawatts, in order to get answers out to those folks as soon as
0: possible. Do you think it would be fair to describe the criticisms of the proposal that you've heard as mostly younger, quote unquote, younger projects that have been in the queue? I know that they've been concerned about multi-year delays and missing you know, some of the timelines that they had anticipated, but would it be fair to describe them as younger projects that are earlier or that have been in the queue more recently, don't have as much that has been done so far as some of the later projects that you're talking about right now?
2: Yeah, I think some of the concern you're hearing is from those people who have just submitted their projects in the last few months. And Mm -hmm. and they're looking at obviously getting answers to their projects as soon as possible. However, I will tell you that had we not done these reforms that we have planned, those folks would be waiting much longer in the serial process that we have today than what they would be if we made these reforms. So while we recognize there's a short-term hit, perhaps, on some of the latest Q projects or the younger ones, as you had mentioned, long-term, this is going to be better for everybody and be better for the entire system.
0: So we're talking about some, some short-term pain here in exchange for improving the system comprehensively long-term. That's correct. Yeah. Now it's time for the rapid fire section of our show. Uh, so number one, you're a Penn State grad, which is more important, a whiteout at Beaver Stadium, THON at the Bryce Jordan Center, or the Big Ten Championship in Wrestling?
2: Listen, I love NCAA sports as much as anybody, including football, wrestling, swimming. However, THON is just an incredible charitable event. Really? And it's done okay. to, yes, it's done on behalf of pa- pediatric cancer. So okay. uh, my answer Is Thon for sure? Okay,
0: cool. Hey, that was not necessarily the answer I expected, but um, I'm excited to hear that. It's funny, you know. Obviously, we're here in Pennsylvania. uh, I know a lot of Penn State grads, and I, you know, the 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 amount of times that I hear Penn State grads talk about Thon, it's uh, they, they really they really enjoy it and they really get behind it. So that's that's cool to hear. Okay, PJM's website says that you got your MBA at Lebanon Valley College. As someone who was raised in Lebanon County, I have to ask, what did you do while you were there?
2: So I had my first job out of college working for MedEd in Lebanon. So I started out in the the region, and uh, that's how I came to know that area. I had never been there before that.
0: Okay. What keeps you up at night
2: job-wise? Well, I think the biggest thing, Rory, is ensuring a thoughtful and logical transition to this grid of the future. That's what keeps me up at night.
0: Yeah. Okay. What are you passionate about beyond ensuring the electricity grid doesn't fall apart in the next decade or so?
2: Well, I'm passionate about a lot of things. Um, the one thing I'll mention is uh, is a, a group called the Mayfly Project. It's a okay. group that I participate in as a fly fishing instructor oh. for orphan children. So I belong to a chapter in the central Pennsylvania area, and we have a good time five six times a year taking orphan children out and teaching them all about stream etiquette, entomology with insects, and fly tying and fly casting and how to catch trout
0: interesting well let me ask you this guy i didn't know this this little bit of info about you what is your favorite stream in central pennsylvania to go to oh man i don't want to
2: tell you that because then we're
0: gonna have <laughs> more people there uh, that's how i know that you're yeah. a real that's how i know you're a real angler then listen there's a lot of great trout streams
2: yeah. in the state of pennsylvania um you know honestly my favorite by far because it's all native trout is penn's creek okay
0: all right. all right all right all right very cool very but I'm cool here <laughs> no uh, that's fine no uh, i i wouldn't i wouldn't expect anything less that's fine okay uh final one for well you already mentioned one of them but what other unusual hobbies do you have
2: you know i've done a lot of things in my life um I was a pilot at one point. Oh. I, flew, uh, I flew small planes. I've jumped out of good planes, <laughs> part of a parachuting.
0: Hopefully not the same one that you were flying,
2: correct? No. Oh, no. Okay. But, okay. Uh, my latest unusual hobby is really the fly tying and okay. fly fishing. I, I love the idea of putting feathers on a hook, making it look like something out in nature, and then yeah. using that same fly to actually fool a trout into biting it and landing a fish. And it's really just incredible when you can spend some time in the woods and it's very tactical. It's very strategic. It's very athletic at the same time. And it's a way to uh, really focus on something other than work.
0: Did you ever see and or read a river runs through it? I have. Yes, indeed. Okay. All right. Perspectives. What, what, what do you think?
2: I mean, you know, honestly, there's a, you know, and and you really have to experience it to to really enjoy it, but you're out in nature, you're, you're focused on it. If, if you can't focus on it, you're not going to have a very good day in the water. That's but true. it's just a way to disconnect away from all the problems of society, all the all the issues that you deal with on a day in, day out basis at work and really just refresh your energy, refresh your mind and come back with an eye towards uh, just clearing your mind, being very positive on the next days. You know, really adventure at work.
0: I I can't quote from the book but there's some uh, uh beautiful passages uh, about fly fishing from that book so I I, I thought you might have heard of it and it's uh it's good to hear that you have uh it's uh it's a great Absolutely. book for anyone who hasn't hasn't read it or the movie is also uh, good Brad Pitt's in it that's worth uh <laughs> worth a view. Uh okay. Uh so final section of our show here Ken is we Give our guests the opportunity to offer unsolicited advice to anyone that we think needs it. Now, I understand that you don't provide any specific advice, but do you have general guidance to offer to our audience while you have the podium?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Roy. Look, I've been part of this whole industry for over 35 years, and the amount of change we're seeing in the last several years is just incredible at an unprecedented pace. And there's a lot of good things here happening, right? And if there's ever a time to be part of this industry, it's now. There's a lot of changes taking place. There's a lot of opportunities for young folks who want to participate within this industry to make a difference, you know, participate within decarbonization, participate in this transformation. Mm -hmm. Really, really exciting times. And honestly, you know, we're trying to do a job here to sometimes dance on the head of a needle, in fact, by balancing state and federal policy with the needs of our stakeholders, while still continuing to honor the rules and the laws of physics. So for us, it's trying to pull all those different elements together in order to ensure this reliable grid that's served us very well over the last 100 years or so. So, you know, it's, it's just an exciting time. You know, it's going to take a village to pull all this transformation together as we go through the transition. And uh, I would just ask people to be patient, Mm. be respectful, and certainly honor all the different thoughts, all the different perspectives that come to the table, be respectful, and try to look at things from other people's viewpoints in order to pull this all together in a a real consensual way. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's really key and uh, probably should be reiterated and and brought back uh, in reference to the stakeholder process. Everyone's advocating for their position, uh, but then understanding that at the end of all of this, uh, and I heard a podcast the other day with Vince Dwayne. Uh, and he mentioned uh, a, um, uh, a memory from years ago, early on in the stakeholder process at PJM, uh, where there was pretty contentious. But at the end of the process, everyone sort of stood up and said, This proposal, while it is not in the best interest for my particular interests, uh, is in the best interest for the grids. And therefore, we're going to vote for it. And then everyone sort of at the end stood up and clapped. Uh, How much of that is true? I I I don't know. But um, but that idea of, of communal benefit and interest, I think, is really key. And I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, Glenn, what do you have for us?
1: Yeah. Well, well thanks for, yeah. And the, the first thing I have is, uh, I hope folks listen to Ken Styler. That was some terrific advice from a, a true industry veteran and leader. And, uh, it's pretty clear, you know, just listening to that advice how, uh, how, how, uh, unique an individual Ken is. So, uh, um, in terms of my specific advice, and it's not necessarily advice this month as, uh, as much as it is, I look forward to seeing you. Um, I'm heading down to the NARUC meeting, uh, this weekend, uh, depending on when you listen to this, you might be listening to it after the Nayrook meeting. Hopefully I got to see many of you there and say hi. Um, for those of you who are listening to this before the Nayrook meeting, um, yeah, come say hi, please. It's always great to see folks, uh, as these, uh, COVID restrictions ease a little bit. It's, uh, sort of heartwarming to know we might be getting back to doing some of those things that, uh, you know, we used to do and enjoy. So, uh, look forward to seeing many of you there.
0: For my two minutes, I'd like to sit down with two people, actually, Robert Bryce and Meredith Angwin, both authors of books about the electricity grid. I've known of Bryce since his book, Power Hungry, made a splash as one of the early criticisms of renewable generations' environmental bona fides. But I only recently stumbled across Angwin's critique of the RTO ISO grid operator structure shorting the grid while listening to an episode of Bryce's podcast of the same name as his book. Having an opinion about how the electricity industry is managed is all well and good. There certainly are plenty of them. But the key to a good opinion is at least attempting to make it comprehensive and reflect reality. Nothing screams bad faith like cherry picking what you don't like about your pet portion of a far larger issue and ignoring how it all interrelates. And yet that's exactly what Angwin, and Bryce, by extension by hosting and encouraging her position on his podcast, have done. Angwin. A materials chemist by training who became a pro-nuclear activist and blogger in retirement and parlayed that into a book deal about regulatory oversight of the electricity grid criticizes the RTO-ISO structure for being an impenetrable black box that actually incentivizes an unreliable grid because prices get higher when supply shortages increase, and a fatally flawed concept because no one is solely accountable for maintaining reliability. Well, there are reasons for that, Meredith. Being completely accountable requires having complete authority, and there are concepts we as a country are fond of, like cooperative federalism, that resists such all-in-one-basket, buck-stops-here absolutism. Bryce, whose own credentials are hard to discern other than being a well-known writer of several agenda-heavy books on energy topics, perhaps a wonky precursor to today's famous for being famous social media celebrities, calls her an RTO expert. But when asked what an RTO is, she quickly says she doesn't know, And freely admits she doesn't have the time or inclination to figure it all out to provide a responsible accounting of the governance problem she sees and the magical solution if there is one, because pontificating on the media circuit is much more fun. She says her book, which I haven't read yet since I didn't know it existed until recently, focuses on groups influencing grid policies, except she freely admits she didn't spill much ink on NERC or external market monitors, whom our PJM audience might better recognize as the IMM or independent market monitor, though that itself might be confusing to those in ISO New England who know the IMM as the internal market monitor. Such is the plight of our acronym-heavy industry. Those are two pretty fundamental forces. If I put that in a book, I'd have to do a research project, she says. Yeah, it's hard to fully explain complicated topics like this and takes a lot of research, Meredith. Shocker. Therefore, my advice to both Bryce and Angwin is the same thing I advise to reporters. Get the full facts straight first. Before considering how to explain them in a way that best reflects reality, rather than choosing the narrative that suits your preferences and reverse engineering a story to support it. It's the difference between journalism and advocacy. Both can be informative and have integrity, but never when they're mashed together. So it's been another... Oh, another fine hour, uh, more or less, with uh, with our guest here, Ken Seiler, talking about interconnection, not only in PJM, but external to that, and just what the future looks like. Ken, any final thoughts for the audience?
2: No, look, I have really enjoyed this discussion. You've asked some very good questions, and I'm happy to engage with any of your audience who may have additional questions on these same sorts of things. These are very important topics, very important for the industry, very important for our our particular region we're going to continue to advance this ball forward and working with everybody within our area for the good of the system so thank you for the gt power hour
1: yeah that's great ken thank thanks so much uh it was a true pleasure having you here um who knew transmission could be so much fun uh there's obviously a lot going on incredibly important issues to talk about and uh, i think everybody can rest a little comfortably knowing you're the guy who's in charge of all of that. So thanks for joining us. And thanks for all you do to keep the lights on in our area and keep the quality of life where it is.
0: Thank you, Ken, for being here. Uh, Thank you for taking the time. And of course, thank you to our audience for listening and interacting as they always do until next time, as always be excellent to each other. thanks again for joining us for another episode of the gt power hour the views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any gt power group client for more information please visit www.gtpowergroup.com that's gt dot pcom thanks again and we'll see you next time